0: For more than 40 years, his lens captured the struggle for freedom, justice, and equality. Today, he's still fighting for those values. On this episode, I'm having a conversation with renowned civil rights photographer Cecil J. Williams. Hello and welcome to Photo 365. My name is Andrew Hayworth. I first learned of Cecil Williams in 1997, when, fresh out of journalism school, I returned to my hometown of Orangeburg, South Carolina, to work at the local newspaper. I was more interested in taking photos than being a reporter, so a colleague recommended I pick up a copy of Cecil's then-recently published book, Freedom and Justice, Four Decades of the Civil Rights Struggle, as seen by a black photographer of the Deep South. I pored over that book and the images it contained. It was one of the only photography books I owned for several years, and it provided me with not only a foundation in photojournalism, but it taught me a great deal about the civil rights movement, particularly here in my hometown of Orangeburg. You could say it woke me up. At some point, I worked up the nerve to contact Cecil, who still works in Orangeburg as a commercial photographer. I paid him a visit under the guise of having him scan and print some negatives for me. We hit it off and became great friends, bonding over digital photography, cameras, cars, and Apple products. He'd even hire me from time to time as a second shooter for weddings and events he was covering. On September eleventh, two 2001, I was at Cecil's home developing a website for him when we both watched the World Trade Center fall. Four years later, on another day I won't forget, Cecil photographed my wedding. Born in 1937, Cecil grew up during Jim Crow's segregation in Orangeburg, a city located in the Midlands of South Carolina. By age nine, he'd learned photography, honing his skills shooting candids of daily life in his community. As the early moments of the civil rights movement began stirring in the 1940s, his unique skill set landed him a job as a correspondent for Jet Magazine at age 14. For the next 40 years, he'd capture every major moment of the struggle for equality in South Carolina and beyond. From the landmark Brown v. Board of Education case to the 1968 Orangeburg Massacre, an event that left three young men dead and nearly 30 injured. Along the way, Cecil befriended John F. Kennedy. He photographed Sam Cooke, Althea Gibson, Martin Luther King Jr., and countless other leaders. After writing Freedom and Justice, Cecil created his own publishing company and has gone on to write three more books while publishing more than 200 for other clients. He's also an inventor, and his most recent product, The Film Toaster, is designed to help photographers quickly digitize their film. In recent years, Cecil's photography has been exposed to a new generation of activists thanks to an iconic, meme-ready image of him in 1956 defiantly drinking from a whites-only water fountain. This image routinely shows up on social media, and according to one website, it breaks the Internet every February during Black History Month. Just last year, he opened the Cecil Williams South Carolina Civil Rights Museum, the first of its kind in the state and that is where i'm speaking with cecil williams today cecil it's always a pleasure to see you and welcome to the show
1: well thank you andrew it's a beautiful day in orangeburg and i want to thank you for being
0: here and i want to thank you for inviting me well no thank you it's it's great to be meeting here face to face and i thought we might look back on your first book freedom and justice because we've just passed the 25-year anniversary of the printing of it, and I read it again recently, I revisited all the photos and your writing, and I was particularly struck by the pictures you shot when you were just a child and a teen. What was it like growing up here? Life for me
1: when I was growing up in Orangeburg was pretty much like uh, most other people of color in the Orangeburg community. We lived in a segregated um the era of segregation, everything was separate, supposed to be equal, but it wasn't. Our schools were not as nearly well equipped. So as a child, I had to um, really just take advantage of uh, whatever opportunities there were out there in playing and in my, my schooling and my education. And But pretty much, um, I think that I had a happy childhood. It was one where um, the learning experiences growing up in this community— The segregation that we encountered was explained to me by my mother, who, by the way, uh, came. our family comes from a background of being uh, white, Native American, and black. Mm. And so it was difficult to um, completely comprehend that until I came of age and was able to understand really what this is all about. Living in Orangeburg, South Carolina, one of the states that was part of the Confederacy, and living up and growing... Among maybe the great great grandchildren of uh, those who fought against um the union and uh and of course loss, but Orangebury still yet to me was a place where I learned to um so many imparting experiences of living with other people and realizing that um in spite of the circumstances, I did have opportunities that opened up for me especially when I, I started photography, which I did at nine years old.
0: That is incredible, nine years old. How did you get access to a camera at such a young age?
1: Um, my brother was the holder of the Kodak Baby Brown, you know, household. My mother had bought it from Sears Roebuck for $2.50. <laughs> and he was the one taking pictures around the house. But he took a liking to music and blowing uh, the saxophone. And he gave me that camera. Because I like to sketch and just uh, draw things as a child, the camera opened up a new opportunity for me. So I immediately gravitated towards it because it could do what I wanted to do in expressing myself better. Also, I discovered at nine years old that I could make a few dollars using my camera. At nine years old, I would go to the Edisto Gardens on Sundays, and take pictures of people who were dressed up in their fine clothing on that day, visiting the gardens and the roses and so forth. And I would charge them $1, take their picture, have the pictures developed, and then send them back to them. So that was um, very um, encouraging to me because in a way I was um, developing my craft, but I was also earning money. Yeah, and a dollar back during those days, uh, of course, uh, you know, had a different uh, value to it than, of course, a dollar today. It meant so much for a youth of nine or ten years old to be earning anything. Sometimes I would make as much as ten dollars which today, I think, could be an equivalent of maybe $100. So that was quite an extraordinary experience for a young man or person uh, growing up to um, really be able to uh, you know, bring that kind of income You know, uh, at my age. It enabled me to buy better cameras. Absolutely. Uh, it enabled me to buy a camera later that had a flash unit because my first camera did not have a flash unit, and I could not take pictures under ad- adverse lighting situations or in the evening or after dark. So... Uh, I was able to support my newly found hobby that had had slowly began to turn into an occupation.
0: You were essentially a documentary photographer by age nine, and you have these now historic photos of the community that you grew up in, uh, the Orangeburg community. Were you even thinking at that young age that you were saving a part of history or, or doing any type of documentary photography?
1: Unfortunately, no, because actually had I known that uh, my life would have uh, taken the way that it did, and uh, I become more of a photojournalist and a historian, as it turns out I have, I think I would have taken even more, and I would have concentrated on other things that really now are a part of history, and mainstream history, and in history books. But at that age, and in the presence of that, and the uh, uh, you, a lot of times you don't really have, especially that much um, thought about really the future. You can kind of really deal with the here and the now. Right. And so it was very encouraging to me to really be able to, um, again, see what photography uh, and the magic that it could um, occur by taking a picture. That was fascinating to me. At first I had my pictures developed, my film developed, at a drugstore. And then at around 11 years old, my parents allowed me to set up a dark room in the family household on Quick Street. Oh, wow. And that went even a step further towards cementing my really relationship with photography and, and making it what has become my profession. Imagine, an 11-year-old, you might say with his own private man cave <laughs> and being able to process pictures and discover the magic a lot of chemistry was involved of course and i was beginning to learn that but i crafted the uh, all of the uh, technical aspects of photography and was able to comprehend how the magic in capturing a picture and putting it and starting out with film and then ending up with a photograph and what that was all about it was fascinating to me and as i'm sitting here now reflecting on these years i go back to that time and that period in my life
0: that is so clear to me even after all these years, that's incredible. I, I'd, I'd love to have a dark room even now, actually. Uh, in your book, you mentioned the influence of one of your photographic mentors, Edward C. Jones, and you talk about how he exposed you to the movement that would eventually lead to Brown versus Board of Education. How, how did he influence you? What, what was he teaching you? How did you learn from him? I was introduced uh, to uh, what was happening in Clarendon County, Summerton,
1: South Carolina. Of course, being uh, the the name of the city, uh, in two different ways. Number one, uh, E. C. Jones frequently on Sundays was contacted by the uh, by the NAACP to come into Clarendon County to take pictures. During those days, photography was nowhere near as simple as it is today. You had to take a lot of film. And the film was put in into uh, uh, carriers that had to be inserted in the camera itself. And you could really only have in a film holder, two pieces of film. So it meant that you really had to carry a lot of film, really just to um, accompany your whatever number of pictures you would take. So that made E.C. Jones almost always dependent on someone to assist him. So, when my work with him uh, moved from just occasionally taking pictures for the State College yearbook in Orangeburg, he occasionally would come by on Sundays, pick me up, and then take me into Clarendon County where he took pictures of what is known now as the Briggs versus Elliott petitioners. What was important about these people in Clarendon County is that this group of parents, some of them without any more than a tenth-grade education, farmers, people who had a very limited uh, educational resources and background, started the first case in history that attacked segregation in public education. And the importance of that case was that it later was combined with five other case, four other cases, and collectively it, it becomes known as Brown versus Board of Education. Brown versus Board of Education decided upon by the Supreme Court on May 17th, 1954, was one of the most important uh, Supreme Court decisions. And it really started the entire uh, movement towards, you might say, freedom, justice, and equality for African Americans. It was kind of the beginning. It it was like a a point in history where things reached the bottom and then began to rise. And so it was with that case called Briggs v. Elliott. But the other reason that I became interested in Briggs versus Elliott was because my mother taught with the Reverend J.A. Delane. J.A. Delane, while not being a signer of the petition, was the NAACP person in Clarendon County, and also he was a minister and really um, had two churches. He was the one that gathered the people together to sign the petition. And so his life from the time that he started doing that was always one that uh, he had problems. The people tried to run him out of the community. They would not sell him seeds to do his farm. And that was also happening to all the petitioners who had signed the petition as well. Ultimately, he is run out of Clarendon County. He received death threats. And again, one of those heroes that you don't see in a lot of history books, but a person so much deserving his place in history. So from E.C. Jones, owner of Majestic Studios, and my mother, a school teacher who taught with Reverend Delaney from one of the schools that he was attached to, that's how I became uh, involved in the
0: Briggs versus Elliott uh, case on that petition. And so you were immersed in this at a very early age. And one photo from that time period that, has been published quite a bit is your, I believe it's 1952 image of Thurgood Marshall arriving in Charleston to try the Briggs-Elliott case. And he's getting off the train. How old were you when you shot that photo? Um, I was around 13 years old. Um, During those days, um,
1: I didn't do a great job of always writing down the dates when I was taking pictures,
0: <laughs> you're 13 years old, using a film camera, shooting at night, and Thurgood Marshall is looking directly into your lens. It's it's an amazing image.
1: Yes, and it turns out that uh, I was the only person with a camera taking him. Um, I was taken to Charleston uh, by the president of the NAACP, a gentleman, a, an attorney, who was the uh, the president, and also um, he um, had a law practice here. Uh, His his last name was Morgan, and um, he wanted to record this. And we really wanted to stay the next day uh, to see the uh, Briggs versus Elliott case, uh, really, as it came into being, uh, the trial going on there. But it turned out that we didn't. But we met Thurgood Marshall at the train. And kind of give you an idea of um, how different photography was then, uh, as it is to now, in order to take a picture with uh, at nighttime or under uh, adverse conditions, you had to use a flash bulb to put into the, a flash attachment, which was connected to the camera. Even though the film was relatively inexpensive, you could buy a roll of film for around 55 cents, I believe. But a flash bulb even then costs $1. The bad thing about the flash bulb is that once you press the shutter and it flashes, That's it. The flash bulb is no more good. You have to throw it away. And so that's why of this famous attorney getting off the train in Charleston, I took one film, and that film, uh, uh, after developing it, became so important. That picture has appeared in about 60 history books besides my own uh, books that I have written. But um, it marked, again, a point when this very famous attorney who was handling this case for the NAACP? a uh, gentleman who later becomes on the Supreme Court uh, uh, himself, Thurgood Marshall, where he is engaged in, again, suing on behalf of the Briggs versus Elliott uh, citizens, trying to get better
0: educational opportunities for the people of Clarendon County and their children. And your name was getting out there, people were taking notice of your work. And that's around the time you started working for Jet Magazine. How how did you get involved with them? At 14 years old, uh, there is an incident happening in Orangeburg
1: because on the background of Thurgood Marshall, after winning the Supreme Court decision of Brown versus Board of Education, one of the first places he comes back to is South Carolina. And one of the first places he spoke was at Claflin University and to the people of Orangeburg. He encouraged the people in Orangeburg to test what the Supreme Court had ruled, that segregation in public education is unconstitutional. So Orangeburgers were among the first in the nation to test what the Supreme Court had ruled upon. Now, I'd like to mention, too, that this is before there's even a person named Martin Luther King who has entered, you might say, the civil rights movement um, mix of events. There's no Montgomery bus boycott. None of that has happened. So when Thurgood Marshall speaks to the people in Orangeburg and they um, set out to, to test the Supreme Court ruling, they signed a petition to Orangeburg School District 5 for their children to attend the public schools. And as soon as they did, they were fired from their jobs. Orangeburgers formed a very unique type of strategy. That strategy of boycott was unique to the struggles for uh, freedom and justice and equality, and especially the protests and things going on uh, handled by uh, people of color, again, trying to achieve freedoms and the uh, things that we did gain in civil rights. So JET is attracted to this particular type of protests and this particular type of strategy. They come into Orangeburg and this type of strategy is so unique that they wanted consistent, Coverage of what was happening here, and in Orangeburg in Clarendon County. I might not have been the best photographer in Orangeburg, but it probably was. I was the only photographer in Orangeburg, especially of color, and so they assigned me at that time uh, to be an official correspondent for them. And I got a letter, uh, a week later, after they left, and so at 14 years old, I become uh, really. Um, a card carrying official correspondent for a national publication. At the same time, I also shared my pictures with newspapers such as the Afro-American and the Pittsburgh Courier, which were black black weekly newspapers that really talked about what was happening in black America. And also, occasionally, I took pictures for the Associated Press. It was interesting at the time that the Associated Press seemed to be more liberal-minded. For example, um, the Bureau of the Associated Press in South Carolina was located on the top floor of the state newspaper. So when I took something very interesting, I would get in my car. uh, This is about when I'm 15 or 16 years old, drive to Columbia. And I could not go into the state newspaper room because blacks weren't allowed in places like that. Mm. And in many public and private uh, other kinds of places. We just weren't. So in addition to restaurants and hotels and motels and schools and other things, I couldn't go into a a, a relatively large newspaper bureau office. But I would go in the side and catch the elevator and go upstairs where the Associated Press was, and I was welcome because they respected me as a journalist and did not, um, say, put any barriers against me being a person of and so I would often sell my pictures, and at the time they would pay from thirty five to about seventy five dollars per picture thirty five dollars of course um, then was you know a lot more you know a very good amount for a picture taken doing given the date so I was then becoming a a photojournalist, and again uh, so important because many of the marches and demonstrations that were going on at that time there were no white press covering them. In fact, often there would be a march of several hundred people here in Orangeburg, in Columbia, and Charleston, and there would be absolutely nothing in the paper about that. And that was why coverage by photojournalists journalists
0: like me was so important to preserve uh, those moments in history. You've called Orangeburg the epicenter of the civil rights movement. What makes Orangeburg the center? Uh, I'd be willing to guess if... They didn't live here, most folks wouldn't know anything about Orangeburg. The Orangeburg and Clarendon County and
1: Summerton and Ellery, and say if you want to push it a bit to Columbia in the Midlands, uh, if you would reach out 150 to 200 miles in either direction, you would have, um, of course, what was going on in um, Greensboro, North Carolina. If you reached out a bit in Atlanta, Georgia, you reached out a bit in Montgomery, Alabama. And so we were right in the middle of this. And then if you reach in any direction, uh, north, south, east, or west, we were right in the middle. For a lot of years, I really neglected that maybe I had not come of age earlier so that I would have been able to go to Montgomery and Martin Luther King and Rosa Parks engaged in the Montgomery bus boycott. But later I found out that I was so fortunate to be right in the middle of where it all began. Because we here in South Carolina most of the important and trend-setting and newsworthy things that were happening in civil rights, we were engaged in these kind of activities even before journalists and historians referred to these uh, events as civil rights events. To us, they were human rights events. I would venture to say that the American civil rights movement that we all know about had its origin in South Carolina, not Montgomery, Alabama, Chronologically, South Carolina, uh, so many things occurred. Martin Luther King and Rosa Parks come alive in history on December 1st in 1955. And, of course, we're here in Orangeburg. We go back to 1949 to 1954 with so many things that really changed the course of history, so many things that really uh, involved constitutional change on both the state level As well as the federal level, again with Brown versus Board of Education.
0: Orangeburg has two historically black uh, colleges and universities: South Carolina State and Claflin, where you got your art degree. Yes, Uh, but your passion was actually architecture, and Clemson was one of the few schools at the time that actually offered an architecture degree, but you couldn't attend Clemson because of your race. But you did photograph the first black student who attended Clemson, Harvey Gantt. What was that experience like? That was a wonderful day. Uh, South Carolina, uh, in its
1: uh, higher education, had also barred people of color. When I was a high school senior, I wrote to Clemson because I really didn't think I could uh, make a living in photography and I wanted to be an architect. And this was an extension of my drawing and that kind of thing. But I can't say that Clemson rejected me, they just very simply would not even send me the application blank. Mm. (laughs) So so I I couldn't even apply. My guidance counselor tried to get an application, and whenever you would put on there Wilkinson High School, they knew that was a black school. Mm. But later on, it became my great pleasure to be there. Um, In fact, one of the three people of color on Clemson, when Harvey Gantt becomes the first person uh, since, uh, again, Reconstruction to really set foot on become a student at a major higher education institution, Clemson University. This was a proud moment in South Carolina's history because there was not any incident of, um, again, uh, violence or even a threat of violence. People were so nice. I was treated with great respect. I was even put up on the campus of Clemson because, again, I get there on a Sunday. I remember it was a cold day in February um, and, again, the very next morning early. Here comes Harvey Gantt getting out of uh, his attorney's car and walking on the campus of Clemson University. There were 150 journalists. The journalist covering Harvey Gantt is amazing when I look back at one of my pictures, which I call Harvey Gantt and the Sea of Reporters. Right. The more and more I look at that picture, and looking at it from the perspective of here in um, 2021, the more I wonder how much this picture will mean in the future when we reflect back on what was happening in the second half of the 20th century when a person of color is integrating a major university. Is it possible that 150 journalists from every country in the world who have come into Clemson, South Carolina, and Clemson University, and it's the biggest story in the country to see a person go to college, and the main difference is the fact that he is a person of color. Mm -hmm. It, It gets more impossible to believe that there was a time in our history when that would make major news. Right. NBC was there, CBS. There was no CNN at the time. Of course, this is in the 60s. This is about, I think, sixty two, sixty three, 63. And um, again, but America at this time is discovering Harvey Gantt. But I discovered Harvey Gantt three years earlier when he was engaged in the legal battles trying to get to go to Clemson. Okay. I photographed him for jet or at his home. Actually, when he got out of high school and was trying to go to Clemson. Oh, wow. He immediately... Uh, not wanting to lose any time, went to uh, a school studying architecture in another state. But finally, uh, the uh, district courts in South Carolina, Anderson, South Carolina district federal court, admitted him. And it was uh, again a very, very um, powerful story uh, for Jet. I had like uh, seven pages in Jet magazine at the time of again Harvey
0: Gant again uh, peacefully uh, integrating Clemson University. That's incredible. Let's talk about John F. Kennedy. In Freedom and Justice, you mentioned that your most treasured memory is of JFK, and you've called him a friend and an idol. How did you develop a relationship with John F. Kennedy? When I was a junior and also a senior at Claflin University,
1: uh, we were approaching the um, uh, new presidential race, and uh, people like uh, Richard Nixon or... And and, uh, Humphrey and a number of persons, uh, senators and, of course, well-known political um, people, Barry Goldwater, uh, were contemplating um, uh, running for the presidency. Uh, Also, John F. Kennedy um, had been uh, frequently talked about um, of entering the presidential race as well. This would have been the 1960 uh, presidential election year. And he was my, uh, really, my pick uh, if he were going to really be a candidate. But uh, at the time, uh, when I was a senior, he uh, had not yet thrown his hat into the ring. I was visiting my aunt and uncle during the semester break uh, in New York, and I read in the newspaper that John F. Senator John F. Kennedy was going to appear at the Roseville Hotel uh, in New York. And at the time, I did not have my press pass with me. But I went down there with my twin lens uh, reflex camera anyway to uh, photograph him. In 1960, uh, it is a time where even in New York, there are very few um, black correspondents. And so the hotel room where uh, Kennedy was going to be coming to speak was full of journalists. But it turned out when I entered, I was the only person of color. Hotel security noticed me. And they came over to me and began taking me out. They didn't ask me any questions. They just said, you have to go. And they were escorting me out, even though I had a camera in my hand. Just as they were escorting me out, Senator Kennedy and Jacqueline Kennedy were coming up to the podium. And they saw this going on. And they stopped them. And um, anyway, uh, for a few minutes, right in front of um, a whole room full of journalists, uh, right near the front where the interest was, and he caught me just in time because... I think had I reached the door there, uh, it would not have made as good maybe a picture opportunity. But uh, we talked for a minute or two, and um, he um, asked, you know, what was I doing there? And, you know, he said, that's a nice camera you got. And, you know, and we we had some small conversation. He really saved me from really being thrown out of the press conference. He reached into his wallet and pulled out his um, personal identification address and telephone number at High Intersport Massachusetts. And from that moment on, I became— really, I think, a good acquaintance of uh, the person that would become the next president of the United States. I communicated with him several times. I sent my pictures to him. And once I had the opportunity to fly from Atlanta to Columbia, where he was campaigning. And uh, I was one of the few correspondents who were on his 10-seater airplane that he campaigned with. So over the course of about uh, eight or nine months, I had become a pretty good acquaintance of, again, the person that became one of our greatest presidents. Unfortunately, uh, he was assassinated after being serving only three years. And again, um, uh, I I was so sorry to see it happen. But I liked Kennedy from the standpoint that I felt that he would have been the best hope for African-Americans to really bring about the changes um, in civil rights and other legislation that he might be able to persuade Congress to uh, pass. Uh, But his life was cut short by that, uh, the assassination. However, a former segregationist, President Johnson, really took the legislature, the congressmen, and the senators, and the House of Representatives, and the senators uh, into passing legislation that really probably went beyond what Kennedy was trying to get past and became really uh, the president that um, was able to have the Civil Rights Acts of 1963, the Voting Rights Acts of 63, 64, and 65 passed. And that really kind of changed America from uh, the legislation that happened there. But um, again, some of my favorite memories again, that time when, um, again, this larger-than-life figure, JFK,
0: um, again, uh, becomes um, a very good friend and a very good acquaintance. That's amazing. And those images of JFK, there's a, a, a magical quality to them. It's like you can almost reach out and touch him in those in those pictures. I think the mind plays uh, tricks on us. Uh, I, I too get that same
1: uh, thing from. And, and each picture just is really, um, uh, you know, uh, as I look at the negatives. By the way, my negatives um, of the Kennedys um, again um, are beginning to fade. And it's one of the reasons why um, later on, um, five years ago, uh, I developed a device called the Film Toaster to address the issue of having to scan my film and to scan it very rapidly to save and preserve um, the uh, film images that I, of course, photograph all due my life. Because, again, a lot of people don't realize it, but digital came about uh, just about 1996, uh, it was pretty well developed, about 2000. Right. And I transitioned from using film to digital in 2000. So mm. still yet, um, you know, it's really been uh, really uh, um, about 22, or 23 years where we have got this phenomenal way of capturing images that we use today. And it's also helped to popularize, again, photography, wherein everyone now has a digital camera or a cell phone
0: that can take Very good photographs. Yeah, I can't imagine what the civil rights movement would have looked like if everyone had had access to a smartphone or or some way to share photos as quickly as we can now. Uh, You also photographed Martin Luther King Jr. several times. Uh, What was that like? Uh, Martin Luther King um,
1: uh, came to Claflin University when I was a student in 1960. At that time, he had already won the Nobel Peace Prize and was a very, uh, again, the the symbol of civil rights in America. Um, And uh, I photographed him on the campus of of, uh, Claflin University. Then um, several times uh, he came to uh, again to Orangeburg, and uh, I photographed him at uh, Trinity. And then I photographed him in Columbia, South Carolina. And when I photographed him in Columbia, South Carolina, I chose to put my steel camera down, and I used a 16-millimeter Bell & Howell. And also, the last time I filmed him was I was in Atlanta going to Fry's camera store to buy some professional equipment. And um, unexpectedly, I saw this group of people coming towards me and marching. And so I parked my car on the side of the road, got out, and with my 16-millimeter camera, started filming them. As they came closer, I realized it was Martin Luther King who was uh, marching and leading the march. So that was a kind of unexpected. So in all, I, uh, I really encountered him about four times. But not to take anything away from him, but often as I do presentations, I remind um, the people that I'm speaking with that, uh, again, uh, Martin Luther King and Rosa Parks and the great brave people of Montgomery, Alabama, they made a great impact on history. It's just that I try to emphasize and talk about the South Carolina perspective because the history where we become involved in the civil rights movement comes earlier than that of Martin Luther King, mm-hmm. who came to, uh, to being about December 1st, 1955. Interesting.
0: Well, Speaking of 1968, uh, that was a violent year in American history. Martin Luther King was assassinated. We had Kent State, Vietnam. Uh, But in February of 1968, a group of protesters tried to integrate the local bowling alley in Orangeburg, and that resulted in the event now known as the Orangeburg Massacre. Uh, That's a day that still haunts you and many other people in the community. What were, what were your impressions from that day? Several
1: times in my career as a photographer, um, my parents had, um, again, caused me to be very careful what I was doing. I went to jail twice while photographing events here in Orangeburg. Mm. But one of the events where I nearly, um, in fact, lost my life was on February the 8th, 1968. At the time, I was the photographer for both South Carolina State and Claflin University. I did their yearbook photography. So wherever the students were, were, I was as well. I was on the campus when um, the students who were at that time being held at the campus and not being able to go into the downtown areas because all the entrances and exits were covered by law enforcement. And on Highway 601, You had the law enforcement officers, you had the National Guard, highway patrolmen, city firemen, and city police officers, and also contingents from SLED. Um, But um, I got hungry around 7.30 or so, and I left the campus, and I went to get something to eat. Then when I tried to get back on, I could not get back on. I could not get back on on Highway 601 because it was completely blocked. I tried to go back on um, two other areas on Buckley Street, I could not get back on the State College campus to continue taking pictures. And there was also one little spot right off of Russell Street that when I was a student at Felton, I used to walk home from Felton, and there was a place where two fence come together. And if you were very small as I was, I could kind of squeeze through where these two fences came together. Right. But that was also covered by a South Carolina State University Uh, law enforcement officer, and he would not let me get on. They were protecting people getting on and off because several days earlier um, some persons had come through the campus and they, um, again, um, were up to no good and they were chased off the campus and I think they also fired a shot when they were on the campus. But on February the 8th, about 9.30, the South Carolina Highway Patrolman, under the direction of Pete Strong, who headed SLED, He ordered the patrolmen to load their guns with shotgun shells and march up on the campus. Mm. In doing so, they killed three students and injured 28. Mm. They fired into a crowd of 150 students who were unarmed. That event has come to be known as the Orangeburg Massacre, and indeed it was a massacre. And That was the closest call you might say I ever had and uh, that um, I was fortunate enough not to be there because I believe that had I been there, I could possibly have been wounded or shot myself. Mm. It's a very emotional event to me because, again, um, I knew all three of the students. I photographed uh, Smith and um, uh, uh, Milton uh, and uh, Hamilton. Uh, the two state college students were on the football team. Uh, And I'd also photograph um, Milton on the football team, and I photographed him close up for the yearbook at Wilkinson High School. So I knew all three of them. I mean, you know, not, um, you know, as someone I I encounter every day, but there were people that, you know, I often saw in my work for the yearbooks uh, that I did uh, photography for. Right. But to see them murdered at the hands of law enforcement was indeed um, something that affected me for a long time. Mm. And I believe that it was a senseless act, something that really has not been dealt with or reckoned with. The highway patrolmen were found to be innocent. And I believe that was a tragedy that, um, again, where it was very definitely uh, no doubt that they were the ones that killed the students. Mm. Mm-hmm. The FBI, uh, over the years, thought about bringing this um to the forefront again, but uh, chose not to. So it's really an event that, although it happened so many years ago, 1968, uh, is something that really uh, still has an open end to it, so to speak. The families were never compensated for their losses. And uh,
0: again, the highway patrolman got away scot-free. In your first book, you described the campus as being ground zero, and you wrote about how horrifying the scene was.
1: At night, when I was there, of course, um, you had uh, students really engaged in what you could uh, describe as really a bonfire. It was a gala moment, and uh, they were having a good time. They were you know, running around. They were uh, chanting at the uh, police officers. Again, in their hearts, they knew that they had the right to bow. Here it was in South Carolina, 1968, where across America— Bowling alleys and restaurants that open up to people of color. Right. But not here in Orangeburg. There was a segregated bowling alley that, that was allowed to exist. Right. And so that's why the students were so profound in their beliefs that they were doing the right thing. But they did not have any weapons. Law enforcement tried to paint the picture that they were really returning the fire, so to speak. Mm-hmm. But there were no guns ever found. And again, there it was just a census act of murder on the half of law enforcement officers way back there during that period that so many people have forgotten about it. In the context of today, what's happening across America, things like that are not often remembered. That has been many, many years in the making that law enforcement officers have historically not treated people of color with respect and dignity.
0: Well, that ties into my next question. Uh, in the introduction of Freedom and Justice, you said it was written at a time when our nation still struggles with the issue of race. And your hope was that the book would provide racial harmony. And And now here we are more than a quarter of a century later, and we're still struggling with race. Uh, we we just passed the one-year anniversary of, of the death of George Floyd, which touched off months of protest, and, and the country seems more divided than ever. What is it going to take for us to finally achieve harmony? Unfortunately, um, I think
1: that it's going to be quite a longer time before really people in this country... Really begin to respect each other as it should be it it, it 's just not happening i I thought that really we had just about reached the point where color and complexion and race and these small matters like that like that that separate people were behind us but in during four years of the um trump uh, presidency, he brought that back all over again almost um to a point where uh, I thought that we had to maybe really engage in another civil rights battle uh, for, for this generation uh, to fight, but evidently those races had always been there. But he just gave them a gave them a reason. He he encouraged them. You might say to speak out, and they have spoken out now, uh, and they have repositioned themselves. And so many Republicans who formerly were Very um, great representatives for this country who believed in freedom and democracy have also really been attracted by former President Trump and are now following his ways to uh, really bring down the values that this country um, had and where we were on the way to achieving freedom, justice, and equality for everyone. And that's so unfortunate. But I look at it like this. During the uh, trial of uh, the Brown versus Board of Education case, uh, John Davis, uh, who opposed, of course, and was defending the South in that case, once had a conversation with Thurgood Marshall. And he asked Thurgood Marshall, if you won this case, how many years do you think before we will have a colorblind America? And that was in 1954. And Thurgood Marshall replied, a hundred years it appears that Thurgood Marshall might not have been too wrong because it looks like it might be the year 2054 before we achieve a colorblind society. And that's unfortunate because so much time will be wasted. We could be working on the great problems and issues that face mankind, such as this uh, pandemic that has swept this country and other things that affect people all over the world. Instead of really being bogged down into a centuries-old problem relative to race and color and things that really make us less than true Americans. Under the 14th Amendment, the Second Amendment, the United States Constitution, and the laws governing the state, these matters should have been well established and lived out and under the Constitution that all people would be treated with respect and dignity regardless of their color. But unfortunately, uh, it has not occurred, and um, we have yet a way to go before we achieve uh, maybe the realization that that can't happen in this country. This is um, a difficult time. We're now coming back from the pandemic, and I fear that um, many more incidents of um, Brutality and law enforcement abuse uh, is going to go on. And then now to see our state really pass laws to allow people to tote weapons. Uh, We're just going in the wrong direction. And it's mean-spirited and, again, anti-human. Are they going to ever wake up that, again, these things against people and to separate people cannot coexist in a democracy. And the people really advocating towards things that divide us, I believe that in some ways God will have to deal with them because apparently when we make it so apparent and expose them and they still yet go down that direction towards defending, again, things against other human beings, they don't realize, Um, again, seemingly don't realize what they're doing. So what is it going to take? I don't know, other than, again, God maybe coming into their lives.
0: Mm, uh, that's powerful. Uh, another passage that struck me, uh, again, going back to your first book, was your, your belief that the struggle wasn't so much one of black versus white, but a you called it a conflict between justice and injustice. Do you still feel like that's the case? Yes, because actually you uh, have... Uh, you could
1: see the evidence of this, in fact, um, in the uh, unrest going throughout the country and the marches and demonstrations after uh, the death of um, Floyd and others, where it used to be back during the Civil Rights Movement um, era that you had around 20% of um, white persons who were marching with the demonstrations of the early 1950s and 60s. Today, you have about 60%. So that itself... Is an improvement where people of all colors are joining together against, again, the evils of racism and discrimination. So you also have the fact that, um, again, you have good white people and you have good black people, but you also have bad white people and bad black people. And you, you, there, there's not going to be anything you can do about that. It's, it's just something that's been around for a long time. And so Justice against injustice is something that really, that it can't always really be determined by the courts and our judicial system. Sometimes we're going to have to wait until it matures in the actual people who are practicing and who are the people who are leaders. I see that as a problem in America. as one of the reasons we have not made very much more progress. I see a decline in the leadership uh, of this country. It doesn't seem to be the kind of leadership that we can look up to really changing directions. It's only represented with the Democrats, maybe, uh, and the Biden administration. But will they have the capacity to really bring about the changes we need? I hope so. But again, with so much strong opposition from others, it's going to be a
0: long, hard, mm. uphill battle. As we're here doing this interview, we're we're here in your new museum I know education has always been very important to you, and uh, undoubtedly this museum will be a, a step in the right direction toward healing in some way hopefully what compelled you to to create a museum after publishing uh, full books about civil
1: rights and experiences I've had in covering this as a journalist and uh, from the standpoint of really being uh, a firsthand experience um, I tried for many years after publishing these books to really um, get the state of South Carolina, uh, the county, the city, to establish a civil rights museum in Orangeburg. Again, a very, it played a very important role in the civil rights movement and the origin of the civil rights movement. And similarly, I could not get any um, help uh, from any of them. Mm. So finally, um, about two years ago, uh, I decided to... Uh, take a building that um, I had that my wife and I formerly lived in, a 3,500-square-foot structure. And I had the artifacts and the photographs and the documents to do a museum. So I thought it would not be too much of a problem. Um, and I thought it might be that I would be able to afford to finance, to, to create a Silver rights museum. Um, and I did. Uh, I put about $161,000 um, into uh, really making Um, and equipping the uh, museum to make it a place where we would be able to to, uh, visit and see the uh, individuals who made such great sacrifices and whose shoulders we stand on today. Um, Reading about it in books is one thing, but when you can see the actual faces of the people in my photographs or see their written correspondence or... See great artifacts like maybe the Briggs family Bible, which was the inspiration behind that family in Clarendon County, and then the support and inspiration and belief uh, uh, from their religious standpoint to withstand the terrorism that they faced after they signed that petition. When you house that all in a museum and people can come by to visit, I think it will make an important contribution to people's understanding what this is all about. I have really not yet had a grand opening day because, again, uh, museums cost millions of dollars, and I certainly did not have that. But with the resources that I did have, uh, within the 3,500-square-foot building that I did have, I think I have a good start of of a South Carolina history museum here for people to look at. And um, four months uh, into the making of the museum, um, again, I had to, um, again, close back down again because COVID uh, uh, pandemic uh, started. And uh, it was uh, the safe thing to do to close it up. Uh, But in the four to six months, I think, that I started the museum, I had 9,000 visitors. And I would have to say about 25% of them were white. So I believe that this museum can serve a good uh, uh, function uh, in the community, and hopefully the people of South Carolina will uh, visit the museum uh, now that we're coming out of COVID and uh, I welcome them, invite the public to make an appointment and come see the museum and see this history and uh, really celebrate um, the people And give thanks to the people whose shoulders we stand on today.
0: Well, I tell you, it certainly is a a beautiful space, and it's filled with a a lot of interesting artifacts and, of course, your photography. And I would love to close by having you tell us about your favorite image that you've ever taken. Um, I believe it's the one that that graces the cover of of Freedom and Justice and, and some of your other books as well.
1: One of my favorite and most requested images is of a little boy holding his mother's hand. I took that picture during a 1960, um, maybe 61 or 62 event in Columbia where um, we you had um, protesters and marches around the state capitol asking that the Confederate flag be removed. And uh, right after the... Um, March and the demonstration was nearly um, at its end. Uh, They were singing, I believe, uh, We Shall Overcome. And I happened to look to my left, and I saw a little boy who was really shattered by all of the adults around him, and he was holding his mother's hand, but the lighting was not very good. As I turned my camera around, uh, I noticed that almost if it was a, a divine moment, the clouds kind of opened up. A little ray of light came down on this little boy's face. And that has become one of my favorite pictures. I've used it on the cover of uh, two of my books. It also has appeared in many history books. And um, it's become a favorite of mine because, in a way, it's it's kind of iconic of what the civil rights movement was all about. The name of the picture is Wandering, Waiting, and Warning," And I believe that is so reflective of the uh, total African-American struggle coming to America as slaves and having to lift themselves out of these kind of circumstances in order to become uh, productive citizens, but citizens who also want the freedom, the justice, and equality as all other people want. That's a very simple thing for them to
0: ask, but they so much deserve that. All people deserve that. Such a powerful image and Cecil, thanks for taking the time to talk with me today. It's always a pleasure catching up with you. You're always doing so many interesting things, and uh, I just can't thank you enough. Well, Andrew, I'd also like to thank you. Thank you very much for this opportunity to speak with you, and
1: uh, I'm hoping that the listeners, um, again, will um, again support you, and uh, best
0: of luck to you and your family. Thanks so much. Once again, I'd like to thank Cecil Williams for taking the time to meet with me today for the podcast. And to learn more about the Cecil Williams South Carolina Civil Rights Museum, you can visit CecilWilliams.com. I'll include a link in the show notes. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Photo 365 podcast. If you enjoyed it, please tell your friends and give us a nice rating wherever you listen to podcasts. I'd love to hear from you or see what you're working on. You can always contact me at the show website, photo365podcast.com. If you found this episode useful in some way, please support the show at buymeacoffee.com slash photo365. Keep looking out for great images, keep shooting, and we'll see you next time.